Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus, the 34th chapter, verses 1 to 10. Now, we have been following the story of the Hebrew people as they are led from captivity in Egypt through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. The past couple of weeks, we have been really focusing in on a couple of chapters in the book of Exodus. Uh, where Moses is at Mount Sinai. Uh, We have seen uh, Moses come down from the mountain and discover the people um, worshiping a golden calf, worshiping an idol. And uh, and Moses gets angry and he smashes the tablets. Last week we saw Moses back on top of the mountain um, asking to see God face to face for him to step out of the cloud. And, um, and God makes a promise to Moses that if he comes back tomorrow, he'll do just that. That he'll hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. Uh, that Moses won't be able to see his face, but he'll be able to behold his glory. And so that's where we pick up with, uh, with Moses this morning in Exodus, the 34th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of our Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain, and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people, Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform marvels such as not being performed in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among you who live shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the Word of God. May it find its way in our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen.
I don't mean to brag, but I know Taekwondo. In second grade, I trained for a year in a small dojo in Henry County, Kentucky. So yeah, I know Taekwondo. I achieved the rank of green belt. I broke a board with my foot and everything, so I'm basically like a living weapon. Now, it's been a little while, but I'm confident that even if today, if another second grader came at me, I'd probably take him. I mean, as long as she wasn't a purple belt, that's one level higher than I achieved. Seriously. My parents enrolled me in Taekwondo to give me some confidence because they were worried about me being bullied. My dad had one rule when it came to Taekwondo. I can still remember my dad taking me aside before my first lesson. He looked me in the eyes and said, Danny, this is for self-defense. It's not for hurting people. If someone ever attacks you, I want you to have the confidence to be able to defend yourself. But I don't want you to go looking for a fight. Do you understand? You never throw the first punch. That was my dad's one hard, fast rule of Taekwondo. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the day that I broke it. I can remember exactly how it started. So it was fourth grade. We were sitting in the cafeteria. Me and this skinny, blonde-headed kid with a mullet named Scooter. Now, I wouldn't say we were arguing. It was more of a debate, like a healthy exchange of ideas about each other's mamas. See, Scooter was the one who took it where it didn't need to go. Up until this point, the discussion centered around weights and IQs, but he was the one that started talking about my mother's deviant nightlife. All lies, by the way. At this point, he made a claim so disgusting and vile that he must have learned it from some R-rated movie somewhere. I could feel my heart racing, my blood pressure rising, a bitter taste in my mouth. I can still remember his sneering face as he laughed. Suddenly, I lost control. Before I knew it, I was hitting him, and then he was hitting me, and there we were, two skinny fourth graders just hitting each other. I mean, it wasn't exactly the thriller in Manila, if you know what I mean, but it was enough to get the attention of the teachers to break us up. We were separated with a serious warning, and it was over. Then we got back in line to go to class. Scooter was at the front of the line, and I was at the back. But my anger wasn't gone. I thought about what Scooter had said, the way he had laughed. I lost control all over again. I charged down the hallway and I kicked him, Taekwondo style. He's lucky he's still alive today. He fought back and there were no warnings left. We were broken up and sent directly to the principal's office. And the principal sent us both home from school and told us that we would be suspended the next day. Suspended. Now, my dad arrived to pick me up, and he did not look happy. He walked to the door and said to the secretary, I'm here to pick up the karate kid. When we got to the car, he had hardly spoken a word. I got in, and he told me his, his voice. I can remember it was just trembling with anger. He said, I want you to know, I had a fly fishing trip planned for tomorrow in the Smoky Mountains. 
I've had this scheduled for months. But now it looks like I'm going to be staying at home with you. I hope you're proud of yourself. I wasn't. I don't remember anything else to happen that day. Just that my dad was as mad as I'd ever seen him. Just that I went to bed that night crying. I remembered my dad's rule. You never start a fight. You never throw the punch. The one rule of Taekwondo. I have thrown the first punch twice. And now my dad was angry. Very angry. And I was ashamed. See, in a single moment of rage, my passion had gotten the better of me and I ruined everything. Do you know that feeling? Do you know what it's like to have betrayed your father's trust? To have thrown everything he taught you away in a fit of passion? To have broken his rules and to set back his plans? Do you know what it's like to have provoked your father's anger? course you do. All of us are lawbreakers, deserving of our Heavenly Father's wrath. Now Moses was literally a lawbreaker. I mean literally, literally. He smashed the law against the ground. The old church joke is that Moses was the greatest sinner of all time because he broke all Ten Commandments at once. But it's not a joke. He broke the tablets in a fit of rage. His passion got the better of him. Consider that for a second. God personally wrote on those tablets. He blazed his covenant with the people on those stones with his own hand and gave them to Moses. Can you imagine anything more precious? A handwritten note from God. A message for humanity that says, You are my people and I am your God. Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw the people worshiping the golden calf. And he got so mad that he smashed it all against the ground. Moses was the literal lawbreaker. But it was the people below worshiping the golden calf in the valley who were the spiritual lawbreakers. They too broke something precious. They too were carried away in a moment of passion. Now they didn't have the tablets yet, but they had heard the words. They knew God's rule. I'm your God, just me. Don't make an image. Don't bow down to it. They knew the rule and they did it anyway. They were lawbreakers. And so are we. Literally and spiritually. Literally, because, because we have the words. It's on your shelf somewhere. And spiritually, because we do it in our hearts. We have nowhere to hide. We can't feign 
ignorance. We know our Father's rules. We've heard His law proclaimed from a hundred pulpits and seen it written across a thousand yard signs, and our passion still gets the better of us. Whether it's our anger that drives us to hate, which the Gospel of Matthew reminds us is tantamount to murder, or our desire that drives us to covet, to want what is not ours, and to break our most sacred marriage vows. With the fear, the fear that leads us to lie about the rest. We are lawbreakers. And that lawbreaking makes our Father angry. When we destroy the gift He's given us, when we destroy it through our sin and our shortcoming and a moment of passion, when we frustrate His plans by going against His will, Make no mistake, we incur his wrath. And the wrath of God is a real thing. Look, you all know me by now. You know that I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. If I'm honest, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about God's anger, and it's probably uncomfortable for you to hear. But it is in the Bible. God does get angry, and that anger burns hot. The Bible does not portray God as some passionless clockmaker who creates the universe and then says, y'all do what you want with it, I'm going upstairs. The Bible portrays God as someone who is passionately investing in what's going on down here and moved to anger by idolatry, and injustice. In Genesis, we see that wrath, that anger poured out on people, cities, and, and even the earth. In Exodus, we see him unleash plagues and drown Egyptians. If you go back to the passage leading up to this one, God is angry about the golden calf. He tells Moses, don't let the people near me or my fire may consume them. Ever been in that kind of a mood? If you keep reading the Bible, that anger does continue to flare up from time to time, resulting in conquered cities, humbled kings, and eventually the exile of God's people. But that's just angry Old Testament God, right? In the New Testament, don't we get the kinder, gentler version? Someone forgot to tell Jesus before he stormed into the temple and flipped over all the tables and drove out the money changers and pronounced that not one stone would be left standing on top of the other. Someone forgot to tell the Apostle Paul when he wrote in the book of Romans that the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Someone forgot to tell John of Patmos when he received this fiery vision of divine justice and wrote it down in the book of Revelation. A vision, frankly, more terrifying than anything in the Old Testament. God's anger is real. I hate to tell you. The Baptists aren't totally wrong about everything. God's got a temper on him. He doesn't like it when we frustrate his plans. He can't abide lawbreakers. That anger burns hot. Now, 
I'm not saying this to scare you, right? This, this isn't my Halloween sermon. I just think you have to understand what Moses was expecting to find when he climbed up Mount Sinai in this morning's passage. Moses asked for this meeting, remember? He told God he wanted to see his glory. But I can't help but wonder if he's second-guessing the wisdom of this idea as he begins to climb the mountain. Just picture him looking up to the top and seeing the fire and the smoke. He has to be wondering to himself, what in the world have I got myself into? Am I walking into a trap? Is God going to strike me dead? But Moses keeps climbing. And when he gets to the top of the mountain, God meets him there. And just as he promises, he lets Moses hide in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. And he reveals himself to Moses. Not his face, but his glory, his essential nature, his weight. See, before he said, when he revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am who I am. That's not a very good name. I am what? God is what? That doesn't tell us anything. But now God is finally revealing what he is like, his essential nature, his very essence. So God proclaims his name to Moses and he reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. It's amazing, isn't it? God steps out of the fire and smoke, and he reveals himself as a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. This is God's essential nature. God is the one who forgives. That's exactly what happens next. Moses bows down to God in reverence and asks for forgiveness on behalf of the people. He says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And God grants the request. He makes a new covenant between Moses and the people. Because that's what God does. He forgives. I don't know what Moses expected to find as he walked up the mountain that morning. Anger, wrath, fire, and smoke. But what he found was a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who forgives. Yes, the wrath of God is real. Yes, his anger can burn hot. But hear the good news this morning. His mercy is greater. His love burns hotter. God
God is revealed to us this morning as the one who forgives. See, I believe this passage is the climax of the book of Exodus. I go further. I I think it's actually the climax of the entire Torah. The story that begins with God's creation of the universe and ends with the Hebrew people entering the promised land. This right here is the climax, the defining moment, where God steps out of the cloud and reveals once and for all who he is and what he is like. That yes, he is a passionate God, Jealous, angry, all of it. But unlike us, he's never carried away by those passions. He always stands ready to forgive, ready to renew his covenant with his people. The central message that God's mercy is greater than his wrath, his forgiveness greater than his anger, reverberates through the entire Bible. Every time God's covenant is broken, God reveals himself. Is the one who forgives. After the flood comes the rainbow, a reminder that God will stand by humanity no matter what. After the exile to Babylon, there is return and celebration. After we crucified the living God comes forgiveness and resurrection. Even the book of Revelation ends with a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem with a new temple and a new tree of life for a new humanity. The whole witness of Scripture testifies that God's mercy is greater than His anger. Yes, God gets angry. Yes, He is passionate about His people. But his anger never overwhelms his love and mercy. God is not some fourth grader charging down the hall. God is a loving father. That's the way he reveals himself to Moses and the way Jesus reveals him to us. A loving father. We can ultimately trust in God's goodness, because like all good fathers, even God's anger comes from a place of love. I, of course, say good father because not all fathers are good. Some are violent and quick to anger. Some dominate their wives and children out of a place of hatred and self-loathing. But a good father A loving father loves his children even when he is angry. I didn't understand this fully until I became a father myself. Now, my son is a handful. There's no way around it. I can still remember one day when he was in the second grade. He got off the bus I was there to meet him. He got off the bus and he just immediately walked up to me and said, Daddy, I did not make good choices today. Of course, he was preempting what I was going to read in his folder. See, each day the teacher would send home a folder and in the folder there'd be a note that would say something like, William had a good day today or 
William had trouble keeping his hands to himself today. You know, a, a, a one-word sentence, a, a little tweet, right? <laughs> the, uh, a description of his day that would provoke conversation at home. Well, this day, that note was front and back. There were subnotes scribbled in the margin. There was the testimony of eyewitnesses, diagrams. He was right. He did not make a single good choice all day. And I was angry. I expected better. I don't mind telling you, I gave him a he good talking to. I grounded him. He went to bed crying. I heard him in the other room telling Crystal, Daddy hates me. Daddy hates me. Guys, Crystal and I lost a baby boy six months into the pregnancy. It was traumatizing. We thought we'd never be able to have another boy. Then we got the news that Crystal was pregnant. We held our breath for nine months straight. We cried every time we heard a heartbeat or saw a sonogram. William was born and he had beautiful blonde hair and his mother's smile. He's this loud, funny, wonderful kid. And all I want in the world is for him to grow up into a godly man. I have never even for a second hated him. I never could, I never would, and I never will. I've had nothing but love for William since before he was born. Yeah, I get mad, but my mercy is greater than my wrath. Even my anger is love. So is God's. He is a good father. The kind of father that might get in an argument with this rebellious son. He might say, well, if that's how you feel, why don't you just leave then? But if we ever did, we'd be heartbroken, despondent. He'd spend every day on his front porch waiting for us to come back. And if we ever did, if he saw us in tatters coming up over the hill, nothing would stop him. He'd come running and scoop us up into his arms and tell us that he loves us and that all is forgiving and that we're going to throw the biggest party because we were dead but now we're alive again. We are lost, but now we are found. It's true what the psalmist says. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning.
weeping may last to the night. I don't know when I fell asleep. I was so ashamed of myself for breaking the one rule of Taekwondo, for getting suspended from school, for ruining my dad's fishing trip. And worse, I knew my dad was angry and disappointed and frustrated in the other room. I'd ruined everything. My weeping lasted through the night. In the morning, I was woken up at 6 a.m. Dad said, get dressed. We're going fishing today. When we got into the car, he put a book in my lap. Fly fishing in the Smoky Mountains. He looked at me and he said, since you're not going to school today, you might as well learn something. So I read the first chapter and learned the history of fly fishing in the Smoky Mountains, the difference between trout and smallmouth bass, and which flies you use to catch each. But by the time he had gotten to chapter two, Dad had already warmed up. Soon we were listening to music on the radio and talking. And you know what? That day wound up being one of my fondest childhood memories with my dad. It was one of those special times when I had them all to myself. We went fishing, we talked, we learned a new card game from some strangers at a picnic shelter. We even stopped for ice cream on the way home. By the end of the day, we had both forgotten that I had been suspended, but we decided to forget anyway. Sometimes I think about the old legend, about the saint who prays to God and God tells him, ask for anything and I'll grant it to you. The saint says, make me perfect so I may never anger you again. God replies, make me perfect. They all ask to be made perfect. But tell me, if I make everybody perfect, who would I forgive? See, what if the forgiveness is the point? What if we need to mess up so we can learn what grace is? After all, if you're perfect, you don't need grace. If you don't need grace, you don't need God. There's something about the experience of forgiveness that draws you closer to the heart of someone, isn't there? And isn't that exactly where God wants us? Close to his heart. See, that day with my dad, I didn't learn anything about math or science. I guess I learned some things about fly fishing, which I quickly forgot. I learned something about forgiveness and grace. 
something I never would have learned if I hadn't messed up in the first place. I was drawn closer to my father's heart. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying his anger wasn't real. I'm sure it was. God's is too. But the anger is not the final word. Love is. Forgiveness is. See, that day I learned that Though the mountains of Tennessee don't smoke in quite the same way as the mountains of the Sinai wilderness, God does reveal himself there. Because God reveals himself every place where anger gives way to favor. He reveals himself every time weeping gives way to joy. And in every heart where mercy prevails over wrath. In these moments that God steps out of the cloud and reveals himself as the one who forgives. It's in these moments that we are invited to know the Father's heart of love. And to know that is to behold his very glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.